Thank you very much. Boy, we have just loved our time with you and uh, hate to see it end, to be honest. Uh, this is a great church. I don't know. We might have to trek down here from time to time and, uh, and just jo- join you in a service. We would love to do that. Uh, it's been a joy to go through this, this material in the conference with you as well. Uh, we've thought about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, in our first session on Friday night, and then, then last night looking at the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus, ending with a discussion on His giving the Spirit then to us, this great gift of the Spirit that is granted at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then from that point on, every believer, everyone who trusts in Christ, it becomes a recipient of the Spirit. And in the earlier session this morning, we looked at the Spirit and His work in sanctifying us, in making us more like Christ. It's one of the ways that He comes to glorify Christ. You know, as Jesus said in John 16, 14, He will glorify me. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. And one of the ways that Christ is glorified is as He makes us like Christ. Well, what is that expression? There, there is no greater... The highest flattery, what is that, honey? The highest flattery is, is imitation, something like that. I should have thought of it ahead of time, shouldn't I? But anyway, that, uh, that idea, so, so, you know, the, the Father honors His Son and, and grants us the greatest privilege possible by making us like the one He loves most, His Son. And so we, we get to share in that character. Well, in this last session now, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the Holy Spirit and His work in empowering us for service. So He empowers us to grow in Christ-likeness, but He also empowers us to serve in the body of Christ and serve in the world as we bear witness of Christ. So I hope you have the, the handout. Uh, you should say ses- session four, the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering service. And I want to look again with you at several areas. We're not going to be able to look at all the passages that are here. You can read those yourselves later. I'll pick a few of them to talk about with you and, and think about in these various categories. The first one I think is the most obvious one, the, the one that really has to, to dominate in our thinking when we think of how does the Holy Spirit empower our service. And the answer is He gives every one of us gifts, gifts of the Spirit. This is not just given to a select few. This is given to all the people of God, all of those who are truly saved in Christ. The Holy Spirit grants them a gift, uh, at least one, and I'm sure in, in many cases several gifts are granted by the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul says, to each one, each one of us, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we learn a couple of things in that verse. One is that every one of us becomes a recipient of this gift of the Spirit. And and so, you know, as we think of our own lives with fellow believers, uh, let me encourage all of us to think of ourselves in two ways simultaneously, right? And the reason I say simultaneously is because we tend to think of ourselves, I I know, just know this from observation, we tend to think of ourselves either as one or the other, but we ought to think of ourselves as both of these simultaneously. Well, what are you, are you saying? Okay, well, here it is. We ought to think of ourselves both as receivers of the gifts of others. So we, we come together to, be, to, to benefit from, to, to grow from, to be stimulated from the gifts of other people in our lives to help us grow in Christ. But we also come as givers, as those who give of our gifts to benefit others in the body of Christ, to help them grow in Christ. 
And, and, and so I, I think there's a tendency for some people in the church to think of themselves, oh, we're the receivers. We, we come to church, we find a place to sit, and, and we just receive. And that's our role is to be a receiver. And, and then other people come, perhaps your pastor, you know, and others who, who come and are prepared to, to, uh, you know, to, to serve in particular ways, and they come as the givers. And honestly, we, we all ought to think of ourselves as both of those. Uh, and, you know, I tell my students oftentimes, I know you're going to be tempted to think of yourselves as the givers. You know, you study and prepare and you come and, and teach or preach. You're the giver. But I say, boy, you need to humble yourself and recognize you don't have it all. There, there are people in that congregation whom God has gifted and they can contribute to your own spiritual growth if you will have an openness to that. So, indeed, we need to be open to receive from others as well as People who tend to come and sit and soak, right? Don't do that. You, you, come, and, you, you come and sit indeed, but you come and sit and give. You, you contribute in ways that will encourage one another to, to uh, growth and godliness. So that's one thing we realize. It's given to every, everyone, and so we should be givers and receivers. But also notice the end of that verse. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So these gifts of the Spirit are not given principally to benefit the one who has the gift. Although in most cases, those gifts do benefit us who has the gift. But the, the, the gift is given principally so that we can use those gifts to benefit others for the common good, for the growth of the body, uh, for, for the benefit that can be to the spiritual growth of others. So let me just encourage you as you gather together, to, to, in a sense, retrain how you think about what it means to gather. Train yourselves to think when you come on Sunday morning, I need to be a giver and a receiver, right? And train yourself to think, I need to contribute to the common good. That is, a, a way in which others can grow in Christ. So, I mean, it's not bad to talk about the weather or talk about sports, you know, things like that. That's not a bad thing to do. But goodness, when we gather together, the primary emphasis ought to be on the things of the Lord, spiritual things that will encourage us, ways in which God has, has answered prayer, uh, concerns we have, and, and asking people to share those with us and, and the like, so, so that we meet and gather at a spiritual level more often, I think would be so healthy for most congregations. So indeed, the, Spirit is, the, the gifts of the Spirit are given to each one of us for the common good to build us up in Christ. Here's another passage that is so helpful on this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Peter writes, Above all, keep fervent, fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, just quickly here, this is an amazing passage. Notice that the, the main lead concept that comes in verse, uh, verse 10 is this. As each one has received a special gift. So we've just talked about that. All of us have received a gift from the Spirit. As each one has received that, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So our main reason for having that gift, 
Again, it's not for my benefit. It's for the benefit of others as that gift is used. So you have a gift. God has given it to you. Use that gift for, for the benefit of those uh, uh, w- with whom you are worshiping and serving together in the body of Christ. And then this passage is helpful because it gives us two main categories, really the two broadest categories of the kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives. You see those? Verse 11, here's the first one. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. So there's the first category of gifts, speaking gifts. You know, these would be gifts as one that I have, a teaching gift or a preaching gift your pastor has, and there are many others in your church, I'm confident. Both men and women, women can have the gift of teaching as well, who teach other women, uh, but, but the, the gift, gift of teaching or preaching, admonition, uh, the, the, the gift of, uh, of exhortation, uh, the gift of evangelism, the, these are all gifts that God gives by which we speak forth the truth of God to others. And we are to do it, as he says here, uh, as, uh, as those who are speaking the utterances of God. So it's a sober thing to do what I do, to do what your pastor does, for, for, for any, any teacher of God's Word. Remember, James instructs us that uh, not many of you should become teachers, brethren, because we will receive a stricter judgment. So indeed, it's a sober thing because we need to declare what is truly the Word of God, which is truly the truth given to us by God. Not my opinion, not, not my way of understanding things, but God's. God's revelation is what we are to give. And so a speaking gift is, is one of those categories that God has given, the Spirit grants to certain ones in the church. Here's the second category. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So serving gifts, these are less noticeable. Uh, people with serving gifts will, will very rarely be up here, right, you know, on the, on the stage uh, presenting things to people. It might happen on occasion, but that's not really what they do. They, they are in the kitchen. They are in the nursery. They, they, they are serving the members of the body through the week. Uh, they, they are taking meals to people. They, they are helping others who have physical needs or, or, uh, or, or needs to, to have something repaired or the like. These are, these are the helpers, the servants who use their gifts in ways in which they can benefit the body of Christ. And so when you, when you see that, that you have together both the, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts, what, what tremendous coverage that is to help us with our needs, the spiritual needs and our physical everyday needs in many, many cases. I mean, there's, there's a sense in which this comes very close to matching the two offices in the church, right? Elders, who have the principal responsibility for the, the teaching and the instruction to the church and, and the leadership and guidance of the church spiritually, and then deacons, who, who are servants of the church and, and provide that, that everyday help to people with their physical and, uh, and, and, and uh, daily needs that they have. And so the wisdom of God to put offices in the church of, of elders and deacons that really do facilitate the use of these gifts quite often. Not that every uh, person who has a speaking gift is an elder, but nonetheless, they, they nonetheless have a gift that might qualify them at some time to be an elder. And certainly those who are serving, uh, not every one of them is a deacon, but they, again, might have a gift that might in someday, someday qualify them to serve as a deacon. And so, indeed, the, these two areas are the broad areas that, that give coverage then to the deepest needs that we have spiritually and physically, as it were. Now, one, one more passage here I want to look at with you, and that's Ephesians 4, the next one also. 
This is the last one we'll do in this first category. But this passage is so very helpful, and you'll see why as we read this. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16, Paul writes that, that Christ gave to the church some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay, now there's a lot here, but let me just hit hit on a few points that I think are really important. The first is this, and we'll talk more about this in in another uh, point, uh, major point here in a few moments. But God gives, gives to the church gifted leaders. You know, he, he lists here apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And, of course, apostles and prophets ended at the end of the first century, uh, roughly at, at, the, at the demise of all the apostles. We know that from Ephesians 2.20, the church is built upon the foundation so you don't, you don't keep building a foundation, do you? You build a foundation to have other things built on it, but the foundation is done at some point. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So those two have, have completed their work, have provided the basis, including the revelation of God in the New Testament, the basis for the New Testament church. But then you have evangelists, pastors, and teachers whose purpose is, not that they are the gifted ones, Oh, no, they are, indeed, they are gifted, but they are gifts to the church to equip the membership. Do you see that? That's how it goes. He gives these evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church for the equipping of whom? The saints, the congregation, the membership, the, 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 the believers who make up the body of Christ for equipping the saints for the work of service or ministry, right? So really, the ministry is shared by all of us. We all are ministers in the sense that we are gifted by God, called by God, to use what we have to benefit others in in our service. But pastors and teachers and evangelists help us with that. They, They provide the teaching necessary to guide us in the right direction. And part of Paul's emphasis in this passage is we need them because Goodness, there are lots of voices out there that can trick us, can, can lead us astray. You know, we, we can be tossed uh, here and there by waves of, of false teaching. And so we need those faithful teachers and preachers who will guide us into the truth. But then, once they do that, or as they do that, we then are equipped to minister to one another. And, and so the growth in the body of Christ, as Paul describes it in this paragraph, this section in Ephesians 4, is really a growth that is produced through the body of Christ to the body of Christ. Isn't it amazing? The growth really comes as we interact with each other, as the gifts are used more broadly together. You know, body life, 
You know, Ray Steadman talked about that years ago, and, and for some reason that's kind of dropped out. But really, that's a great concept, isn't it? Body life, the, the life of the body as we interact with one another and help each other grow. This is a very important part of how we all develop in Christ. And then notice at the end of this, Uh, that he says, and this is just fascinating, the wording here in verse 16, Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see that? So indeed, there is this building up of itself through what Christ provides to all of us, both in gifting all of us and providing gifted pastors and teachers to equip us, we we then have the resources necessary for building up the body of Christ in love. And indeed, love needs to be the hallmark of how we do this. You know, I, I think, for example, of people who have particularly a gift of teaching uh, and, and with that, uh, a very strong sense of defending the honor of the truth. How easy it is to turn that truth into a weapon, right? A a, a club, that we club people over the head with that truth. But if we do it in love, we can't do that. Yes, we, we endeavor to be persuasive, we endeavor to hold firmly to what the truth is, but we, we need to, to wield that truth in love, in kindness, in, in, in generosity toward one another. We need to be, in short, like Jesus, ah, who was full of grace and truth. Don't you love it? Oh, my goodness, full of grace and truth. I mean, if we're just full of truth, and we don't have the grace, that's not like Jesus. But on the other hand, if we're just full of grace, but that grace compromises truth, then it really isn't grace, and it certainly isn't like Jesus, right? So, let, let's, let's work at being people who, who really share in each other's lives in ways in which we are truthful but kind and generous in building one another up in Christ. Okay, so this first category of spiritual gifts is one that is just really important, one that we need to latch onto more in the body of Christ. I fear that maybe what has happened is because of some of the strangeness of the charismatic movement, we've, uh, we've kind of discarded uh, from our thinking the Holy Spirit uh, and, and discarded spiritual gifts thinking that that's, uh, that's kind of strange stuff. But really, there's a core of biblical teaching here that we, we dare not discard. Uh, we need to hold on to. Okay, let's move on. Second element we see in uh, our our uh, ability to serve better <coughs> excuse me is to follow the example of Christ uh, you know, I find when I read uh, d- different books on this, and I don't find this stressed sufficiently. And I think it's because years ago, I mean, this goes back really to, to earlier in the 20th century, in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, there was a tendency for the liberals, the modernists out there, to do their preaching from the Gospels. And, and they would highlight Christ and His compassion for the poor and, and the disenfranchised and, and, uh, and healing and His kindness, to His mercy and so on. And so they tended to, to focus on what they called the social gospel, right? The, the, the good news of Christ to help people in their everyday physical needs. 
Well, the, the fundamentalists didn't want to be like liberals, and so they tended to distance themselves from the teaching of the New Testament of following Christ. And, and so they preached from the New Testament. Right? They, they preached from, from the epistles of Paul, principally, and, and didactic teaching and the like. But you know, the, the Bible is so clear that, that we are to follow Christ, and we are to follow Him in all the ways that He ministered uh, to, to, to others in both His compassion for the poor and so on, but also His upholding the truth of God's Word and, and defending uh, the, the truth against those who opposed Him. So it's really the whole picture. And, and we see in the New Testament uh, the, the encouragement for us to become like Christ as we serve one another. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a text I talked about in the last hour also. It's just a beautiful statement of what the Spirit wants to do within us to make us like Christ. We read here that we all with unveiled faces behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. That means in increasingly, in incrementally increasing degrees of glory. And this is from the Lord, the Spirit. So what the Spirit wants to do within us in order to help us to serve others is to make us more like Christ. That Christ we talked about a moment ago who is full of grace and truth. He wants to make all of us more like that so that we live out Christ-like service to one another. Uh, Service that is not Christ-like cannot really honor Him. Only service that is representing Christ in what we do. Motivated by love, motivated by truth, uh, is, is service that truly does honor Christ and truly is beneficial to others as well. Uh, look at another passage that is so beautiful. Philippians 2, just dropped out a few verses there. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, where Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, it's a phenomenal passage, my friends. Uh, the, verse 5 there is really the lead idea that we are to have the attitude in ourselves which you see in Christ. And that leads him then to this rich theological discussion of the, what's called the kenosis, the, the emptying of Christ, which doesn't mean, by the way, just to be clear on this, it doesn't mean anything is emptied out of Christ. That's not what the verse says. Uh, it says that he, he emptied himself, or another literal translation of that term is he poured himself out. How did he pour himself out? By taking the form of a bondservant. So all of who he is, fullness of deity, fullness of deity, no subtraction to his deity at all, but he adds to himself humanity. And as he takes on humanity, he then undergoes the, the calling that the Father gave to him uh, to, to live this perfect life in a midst where there would be tremendous opposition tremendous persecution that would come to him, affliction and suffering that he would endure through the whole of his life, resulting in his giving his life in obedience uh, as a sacrifice to die on the cross for us. That's the example that Paul uses of all things to say, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I submit to you that because Christ came from the highest height, 
from his fellowship and joyous relationship with the Father to the lowest depth possible to, to become the servant of all as he bore our sins in his body on the cross, then there is no calling that God would have for any of us that could begin to match the tremendous sacrifice that Christ has done on our behalf. And therefore, ought we not be open to any, any service that he calls us to? I mean, keep in mind, this is the way God is. If you don't know this about God, oh my goodness, learn this. The thing is, if he calls you to great sacrifice, you know what he has in store for you? Great reward, which may come in this life. Some of it may, a lot of it may, but a lot of it may wait until the life to come. But God will never, never call you to something that requires great sacrifice of you. Enduring affliction, enduring suffering, giving yourself in service to others without Him providing for you tremendous reward. Blessed are you when men persecute you and, 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 and violate you for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. So indeed, the, the joy of knowing that even that life we give ourselves to, that, that in, in obedience to Christ is a life where, that costs us a great deal. Number one, it will never cost us what it cost Jesus. Never. Impossible. We can't begin to match that. But nonetheless, it may cost us a lot. But number two, we don't lose in this process. It's a cost that ends up giving tremendously to us. And in this life, even if the reward doesn't come till heaven, in this life, the joy of knowing that we are doing what God has called us to do. So indeed, Christ-like living is, is, is the the manner in which our service ought to take place, uh, representing Christ, the character of Christ, the love and grace of Christ, <clears throat> as indeed uh, he, he has exhibited to us. Okay, let's move on to the next category, Roman numeral three. Roman numeral three, the strategic and central role of preaching and teaching primarily from church elders and leaders. You know, one of the greatest gifts to the church to equip the saints, uh, empower the saints for service is through gifted teachers and preachers. You know, it's amazing to me that God did it this way because He didn't have to. I mean, God, God could have provided unilaterally all that each one of us needed to know just by His direct uh, revelation to us, His direct, directly working in our own minds or illumining His Word as each of us would read the Scriptures and the like. But he didn't do it that way. He, he gave some people in the church an incredible privilege. I mean, I feel the weight of this just so much in my life and ministry. The incredible privilege of being given a responsibility of teaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. I know your pastor feels that. I, I know, I, I, you know the, the people I associate with, my, my fellow faculty members at Southern and, and pastors I know feel the weight of this, the privilege it is that God has called us to be those who, who teach and preach. And, and when you realize why God did this is so that there would be a regulation of the way in which His truth would be understood. Because there is false teaching. There is, there is distortion that takes place at so many levels. And so he calls faithful pastors to, to be the ones who bring to their people the truth 
from his word that really does represent the revelation of God. So let let me think with you just about a few of these passages that speak about the importance of preaching and teaching. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, so pay your pastors. I mean, this is basically what it says, right? And and they, they, they are deserving of that. But especially those who work hard at what? Preaching and teaching. So indeed, Paul knows that this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for most people in terms of them getting it, that them seeing the glory of Christ, them understanding the gospel, them, them see, seeing what life is about, who God is, who they are, what, what sin has done to them, what, what the grace of God has accomplished for them in Christ and so on, how they should live their lives. This comes about so often for so many people through the preaching of God's Word. So indeed, that role is of utmost importance within a church. I, I, I shudder when I hear some churches out there these days who are leaving behind expositional preaching and are going to kind of a discussion format with people. And honestly, it's just, it's just a betrayal of what we see in Scripture. There is to be a proclamation. I mean, think how unusual this is. You sitting there listening to somebody for 40 minutes. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't do that any other time in your lives, maybe watching television, but that's not the same thing, is it? That's entertainment. I mean, to be instructed by someone, and God set it up this way so there would be this air of authority, authority where, where yes, you listen. You, 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 you have to follow the line of argument. You have to pay attention to what's being said and, and take it to heart yourself. He did this on purpose in order to convey the authority, the sobriety, the importance of that word proclaimed. And, and indeed, to give that up, as some churches are doing, uh, I just think is a tragedy. Uh, they, they are really betraying what uh, God calls us to do. Second Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearance in His kingdom. Look at, the, look at the, uh, the preface to this, right? My goodness, that first verse, wow, the charge is in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by His appearance, His appearing in His kingdom. Wow, He set us up for something big. What is it? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Boy, we're there today, aren't we, in the culture in which we live. So many, many, many churches are unfaithful out there. Oh, my, my goodness, it's just sad to think of this. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Oh, yeah, let's find a book out there that, that describes God the way I want Him to be. Oh, you can find it. You can find it, you know. Uh, you, you can find The Shack, you know, by w- William Paul Young. That just describes beautifully the way the people of Portland, Oregon, want God to be. But you know what? He isn't that way. Read the Bible and f- find out who God really is. Yeah, there, there are people out there who tickle ears. They accumulate for themselves teachers uh, in accordance with that. And they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, indeed, boy, pastors and teachers are just such an important part of a church to help equip the saints, and they will bear responsibility before the Lord. It is a sober thing 
to, to, to imagine standing before God and giving an account of false teaching? Oh, it, it makes me shudder. It makes me shudder. And so the, the, the sober responsibility of those who stand behind this desk to bring the Word of God to people as God has revealed it is so very important. Titus 1.9, here, here is something in, in, the, uh, in the process of, of describing the qualifications of elders in Titus chapter 1. Here is part of those qualifications, that they hold fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that is the faith once for all given to the saints, so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So you, think, you see three things here about these pastors, teachers. They need, number one, to hold fast to those teachings themselves. I mean, how important it is for pastors to teach not only out of the, the careful thought of their minds, but of the deepest convictions of their hearts this is what they believe. This is what they will die for. This is what they live for. This, this is what moves them in their own lives. The, the convictions of their hearts have got to be in line with the Word of God themselves in order, in order to be preachers of God's Word. But then, as they preach, they need, I think principally, the first part of this, exhort in sound doctrine. This is what they do mostly, right, is teach the Scriptures and exhort people to, to know what the truth is and follow it. But then, uh, but also along with that is to refute those who contradict. So goodness, when, when there is a popular book, I just mentioned earlier, The Shack, a popular book out there that everybody's reading, and it is, it is contrary to the teaching of God's Word, then a pastor has the responsibility to warn his people uh, about that way of teaching uh, or that book that's out there. I mean, goodness, if they've written the book and their name is on it, it it's open to discuss, yeah, right? You know, you're not betraying anybody's confidence because it's in Barnes & Noble. You know, you can get it yourself out there. And uh, it really is important for pastors to guard their people from, from being attracted to things that might sound appealing, but in fact is leading you away from the truth of God's Word. So indeed, both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Paul names names in his own writings. You know that? He names the names of those who he says to be careful of. You know, don't, don't follow their teaching and so on. So that's part of what we do as well. And then Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Do you know that pastors who really take their role seriously feel this so deeply? They know that the responsibility for the, the well-being of the souls of my people is, is in a significant way in my hands as I, as I teach and preach and lead these people forward. And so they, they bear that responsibility and will give an account for them. But then he goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Meaning, of course, don't make it unnecessarily hard on them. You know, I mean, yes, of course, there are always things that come up in a church, but, but don't be that person who is always complaining, all, always uh, just uh, uh, ca ca criticizing and, and, and calling things into question and the like, because that can just be so discouraging. And when a pastor and a teacher is discouraged, it's very hard for him then to have the joy of the Lord in his preaching and teaching ministry. So it will be unprofitable for you as a result of that. 
So, you know, boy, this role then is so important. I'm really excited with where your church is moving, just to, to know a bit from your pastor this weekend about moving toward a, a, an elder, an elder deacon structure and, and understand a plurality of elders. You know, every time elders are discussed in the New Testament as they relate to an individual church, it's always plural. It's always plural. It's a plural group of elders in this local church. There's uh, eight or ten examples of that in the New Testament. It's very clear. And, and to realize the responsibility those elders have, and yet the congregation plays a role in this, you know, because it is we together who affirm these things. And, and so to have the kind of structure that you're thinking of here with elder-led, congregational ruled, I think is a very important way to go with this. And I commend you, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing, uh, you know, in the weeks to come how, how this works out for you. I, I'm praying for your best in this. Okay, strategic role of teachers and preachers in equipping the saints uh, in these ways. Fourth, fight of faith. Fight of faith. Let me give you an advertisement here first before I even talk about this. Jody and I had the privilege of attending Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis only one year, uh, one, one of the years I taught at Bethel Seminary, when John Piper was early in his ministry at that church. He's now retired, of course. But the year that we were there, he preached a sermon series I would highly recommend that you listen to. It, it was one of the most profound, deeply imp impactful sermon series I have ever heard. It's called Battling Unbelief. Battling Unbelief by John Piper. If you go to the Desiring God website, you could find it uh, very easily. And what he does in that, in that series is basically take all, you know, a variety of ways in which we are tempted to disbelieve the promises of God and shows that that disbelief, that failure to trust Him, to, to believe in Him, is what eventually leads us into sin. All sin is ultimately an expression of unbelief. So battling unbelief is then a way in which you can progress in becoming more sanctified, more like Christ and the like. And so really this fight of faith that we see in the Bible is right at the core of being a person who can serve well. You say, what, what does this have to do with service? Ah, it has to do with you who is able to serve because you are one who is fighting for your faith day by day. You are serious in undertaking the, the, uh, the, the cautions and, and, the, and, and the positive steps forward to live by faith day by day. Here's a great principle that comes in Romans 10, 17 in regard to faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So indeed, how important it is to have our ears open to the teaching of Christ in the Bible. You know, isn't it interesting that Christ said at, at the end of the Great Commission, um, uh, go to all the world, make disciples of all the nations, uh, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and teaching them all things I commanded you, right? All things I commanded you. So indeed, there's a sense in which I think we ought to understand the New Testament in particular, but the whole Bible also can be understood in this way, but particularly the New Testament as the commandments of Christ. Uh, you know, we, we no longer as believers are, are under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. It's so clear this is the case in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, you know, when I'm with Jews, yeah, I become as a Jew. Who is saying this? 
Paul, Paul, who used to be a Pharisee, right? You know, I become as a Jew. Well, he's not anymore. He's a Christian, right? You see that? So, so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid ham sandwiches, you know, when, I, when I'm with the Jews. No bacon. I, that's a sacrifice. I know it, you know. But uh, I'll, I'll avoid the bacon when, when I'm there with the Jews in order to win some of them. But when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm not under the law of Moses. But that doesn't mean I'm not under any law at all, for I'm under the law of Christ. The law of Christ really is Christ becomes the new Moses. Do you see that in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount? You know, he quotes Moses. Uh, um, and, and, and he says, uh, oh my goodness, my mind just has gone blank here. He quotes Moses. Uh, you have heard that it was said, and he, and he quotes some statement from, from the Decalogue. You have heard that it was said, but then listen to these next words. But I say to you, oh my goodness. I mean, any Jew listening to that, his jaw would drop. Who do you think you are to quote Moses and then share your opinion, you know? No, and that's exactly the point. One of greater authority has come. So we are under Christ. We, we, we have the law of Christ, which is the New Testament. And this is the word of Christ. So indeed, we need to saturate ourselves in this word. Uh, to, to be those who take this word in, by which faith then is produced. Without a regular supply of word that comes, yes, in your teaching and preaching together here, in your discipleship programs and the like, but also in your own individual time, in the word, to be consistent and diligent in that, is, is a, a resource that provides for you what you need for faith. And why is faith so important? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's the things that we believe in God's Word, His promises, His, His, His assurances, His commandments. Those teachings of God's Word are what guide us day by day in life, even when we can't see that that's the right way to go. We believe the promise of God, the, the direction of God, the commandment of God. We believe that. Um, Colossians 1.23, skipping down just a bit. Colossians 1.23, Paul writes that you've been reconciled if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moving away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So indeed, if you continue in the faith, firmly established. So indeed, this notion of, of continuing to believe and believe what is true, and believe it with greater conviction, and, and believe it with a, a greater sense of, of duty to proclaim it to others, is, is, is what marks one who is truly saved. And then the last verse here on this section is 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So my friends, indeed, the faith that we have entered into is a faith that we need to fight daily to uphold. There are no vacation days for Christians. Did you know that? There's, there's no day when Satan will post ahead of time, you know, I, I'm not going to bother you today. You know, you, you know next Wednesday, uh, you, you can have it. I'm, I'm not going to be after you. Oh, no, he's after you every day. Your flesh is after you every day. The world is enticing you every day. 
So indeed, every day is a fight of faith for believers. If your view of the Christian life is, as I grow in Christ, it gets easier, you need to think again. It doesn't work that way. I mean, there is a rest that is coming in the new creation. Praise be to God. But in this life, we fight every day to believe the promises of God, to, to follow the commandments of God, to resist temptations that come knowing they, they are deceptive. They always lie to us and, 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 and attempt to lead us into something that will be harmful. So indeed, may we walk by faith and, and experience the joy then of living in increasing obedience to the Lord. Final point, uh, and many of you are going to wish this wasn't on the handout. Here it is. Sufferings and afflictions. What can equip us? Ah, to, to be servants to others? You know this, don't you? You know before I even talk about it that it's true. Sufferings that we go through in life are, are so often used by God as instruments by which we can minister to others who are going through similar afflictions. You know, it's just amazing how, how this works this way. Um, so God oftentimes ordains the sufferings and afflictions that we go through in life, not only to build us up in Christ, so, so that we trust God in the midst of these afflictions. We, we believe His ways are good, even though this is painful and hard and difficult. We know that His wisdom cannot be exceeded, that He's perfect in all of His ways, and He's designed this for our good. And we believe, Romans 8, 28, that, you know, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so, indeed, those sufferings have that purpose in sanctification, absolutely, but they also have a purpose in service so that we have greater compassion. We, we, have, we have more sympathy and understanding with those who are going through similar kinds of afflictions. I, I know in my own life, uh, Jody and I, you know, honestly, we have had blessed lives and have not had uh, much serious affliction. We have had some. And, and probably the, the most difficult thing was a period of postpartum depression that Jody went through after the birth of our second daughter. And it was a serious, it was serious. Uh, this doctor told Jody uh, that unless she took some uh, antidepressants, that she would struggle very seriously with this for a full year. And she didn't take that medication because she couldn't nurse. It's because she wanted to nurse our little baby. Uh, she didn't take that medication. And so indeed it was just as he said. It was severe depression for a full year. And I, I can remember times praying with Jody in bed. Oh my goodness. To see her trembling, just, you know, in anxiety and, and, uh, and just trying to comfort her and pray with her. And, and a friend of mine, at, I was at Western Seminary at the time in Portland, a friend of mine, when I would knock on his door, he knew it was me, immediately he dropped everything and came to the door and opened it up, welcomed me, and he said, let's pray. He knew what I was there for, to pray, pray for Jody. And, and uh, uh, Carl Laney was his name. What a dear friend he was to me. So, you know, that, that experience that we had, Jody has had, I don't know how many women Jody has ministered to who have gone through periods of depression, but there are many, and, and she can empathize with them. She, she can tell them how important the Word of God was to her as she went through that period of depression. She, you know, she, she read her Bible constantly. Uh, Bethany, our, our older daughter, said, said to my folks when they were visiting us, she said, Mommy needs to read her Bible. That's where she gets her strength, you know? And uh, to, just to, 
you know, to see Jody hang on when her emotions were just depleted, when nothing in, in her was, was urging her to do this, but she knew it was the right thing to do, this truth that she needed so badly. So I tell you, that year was very, very hard, but we grew, I grew, she grew so much through that. And part of the reason I know besides the growth we experienced was the ministry that Jody in particular, but I also have had with people who are going through uh, depression. Now, I, I bet that story of, in some form could be told a hundred times in this room. I am just confident that is the case. Sufferings you've gone through that you know the Lord did that in part for the ministry you could have in other people's lives as a result of it. So indeed, this suffering that we experience, God knows why, why it's there. And sometimes He, you know, in our case it was a year long, hard year, but it ended. Uh, in other cases it goes on, you know, for, for a lifetime. Uh, and yet we trust God's wisdom in granting these things. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's just talked about that earlier in the chapter, that he, he had seen these glorious revelations of God. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak in myself, then I am strong in the Lord, obviously, is what he means. Let, let me just comment a bit on the three times that Paul prays. He prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. I, you know, some, some people have taken this to be Trinitarian. He prayed to the Father, kind of like kids do. You go to mom first, oh, she says no. You go to dad. I just, I don't think that's it. He prayed to the Father, prayed to the Son, prayed to the Spirit, hope one of them would say yes. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it at all. He, he prayed to the Lord. I think this is the Lord Jesus. I, I think that's the most likely understanding of it. When he prayed to the Lord, Lord is used most often in the New Testament in relation to Christ. So he, he prayed in three times for this thorn to be removed. I don't know what the thorn was. My own suspicion, it's only a suspicion, is that it was his, his horrible eyesight that probably happened when the revelation of Christ came to him in his conversion. And, and, uh, and, and you know, he says, with what large letters I write, there are indications of, of how bad his eyes were, how difficult that would have been for traveling and so on. That's just a guess. I don't know. But it was some serious affliction that he had. He prayed three times for it to be removed. Here's what I think that three times means. Number one, it means persistence in praying. You know that the only one who can help you with this is God. He's your only hope. So instead of going horizontal to everybody else out there to try to get help with this, not, not that it's wrong to do that, but if we go horizontal first and foremost, we are betraying our trust in the Lord. This is not trusting God, right? Because I know a good doctor, I know a good friend. You know, no, I mean, the horizontal is okay as long as you have first gone vertical, right? You go to the Lord and you pray to Him. So that three times indicates a persistence in praying. He recognized only God could help him with this. So he prayed and pray, prayed fervently 
And he didn't get the answer he wanted. So he prayed again. He prayed fervently. Again, the Lord didn't answer his prayers he wanted. And so he prayed again. So I think there is this sense of, of fervency and persistence in praying that is indicated with three times. But here's the other thing. Three times indicates Paul accepted no as God's answer. Wow, that's a hard one, isn't it? Paul accepted no as God's answer. But notice the framework for the no, right? Uh, the, the, the declining Paul's request. No, I'm not going to take the thorn in the flesh away. Why? Because it will be better for you, Paul, to, to retain that thorn in the flesh for the good purposes I will bring about in your life through that. So indeed, and Paul then was able to minister to others from, from a, a standpoint of weakness and humility that really, oh, it, it, uh, it, beaut, it beautified his apostolic ministry because he was so humble in the ways in which he approached people. Now, he was bold with the truth, but he was a humble man. And part of that humility came about through this, uh, this experience he had of the thorn in the flesh. So indeed, uh, God uses these things in it to remake us to be a, a more humble people, a more grateful people, a more dependent people, so that we can then use those things in ministry to others. Last passage, we'll close after this. 1 Peter 4, bottom of page 4. Peter writes here, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you." My friends, you all know this. We are living in a time when the previous acceptance of the Christian faith in our culture is now in decline. And there is a growing hostility. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There is a growing hostility to all things Christian. And, and indeed, we are entering, unless God does a work of revival that is remarkable in our land, and of course, He could do that, and we pray for it. But if things don't change direction, we are moving in a direction in which we will experience far more direct persecution than we had ever thought. How do you minister in the midst of persecution? And I'll tell you, the single most important way you do is by you being faithful to Christ in the midst of that persecution. So your Christian friend can look at you, your neighbor can look at you and say, wow, look at her, look at him, how, how faithful they are to Christ, how, how committed they are to the truth of the gospel. They will not compromise on that. And it will inspire in others uh, a, a longing likewise to be faithful. It will no doubt bring people to Christ as they see your love for Christ, your love for His gospel, uh, your, your longing to honor God with your lives, as they see that exhibited in your life in the midst of persecution, they will say, what does that person have? Wow, I want that. So may God help us to be people who experience more of, uh, of the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our own lives, but through that, through that work within us, the, the fruit of service 
in the life of others. That God may use us to help build up the body of Christ and be used in a world that needs so badly to hear the gospel of Christ. May God do this good work for His glory and for the good of us His people. Let's pray together. Father, thank You again this morning for the, the joy of being able to consider together some really weighty, beautiful, glorious truths about what it means to serve one another. Thank you for the gifts you've given each one of us in the body of Christ. Thank you for the gifts of pastors and teachers, elders. Uh, th thank you, Lord, for even the gift of suffering. Yes, gift, gift of suffering, by which we grow in ways we never would have and can minister in ways we, we couldn't have otherwise. So, Lord, we give you praise for this and help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you and our longing to serve you well for the sake of Christ and for the good of your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.